Hear ye, hear ye. The United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit is now in session. All persons having business before this honorable court, draw near, give attention, and ye shall be heard. God save the United States and this honorable court. All right. Ms. Campbell, are you up first? Yes, Your Honor, I am. Go ahead. Chief Judge, hey. may I call the case? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Case number 20-6267, Bristol Regional Women's Center versus Herbert Slatery III et al. Five uninterrupted minutes per side, followed by a question and answer period. Ms. Campbell, you may proceed for the appellants. Thank you. Chief Judge Sutton, it may please the court. Good afternoon. My name is Sarah Campbell. I'm here on behalf of the state of Tennessee. I'd like to reserve two minutes for rebuttal, please. Okay. Abortion is unlike any other procedure performed by a doctor because it terminates another life. For that reason, Tennessee requires that a woman who wants to obtain an abortion first meet with a doctor in person to receive information about the risks of the procedure and her options and then wait at least 48 hours before returning to actually obtain the abortion. Over a dozen other states have similar waiting period laws that require two trips to an abortion provider. And for nearly three, excuse me, for nearly three decades since the Supreme Court upheld Pennsylvania's 24 hour waiting period in Casey, the constitutionality of waiting periods at the federal level, including in this circuit has been settled. The district court thought it could ignore Casey because the record in this case is more developed and plaintiffs pressed the same argument before this court. We agree that the record in this case is more developed, and that's because the waiting period had been in effect for more than three years by the time of trial. But far from justifying the district court's departure from Casey, the record here simply confirms what Casey held, that a modest waiting period does not pose a substantial obstacle to abortion. Under the governing legal standard, an abortion law is a substantial obstacle only if it prevents women from obtaining abortions. The record in this case clearly shows that Tennessee's waiting period did not have that effect, let alone for a large fraction of women. The best proof of that lies in Tennessee's abortion statistics. Abortions in Tennessee declined only slightly after the waiting period took effect in 2015. And that decline began well before the waiting period was enacted and is consistent with nationwide declines that everyone agrees occurred for reasons unrelated to waiting periods. Plaintiffs seem to think that the district court's factual findings somehow insulate its judgment from review, but this court can reverse the judgment below without reversing a single factual finding. That's because the district court did not find that the waiting period prevented a large fraction of women from obtaining an abortion. The fundamental flaw in both the district court's opinion and plaintiff's arguments on appeal is their insistence that burdens that merely delay abortions or make it more difficult or costly to obtain them are substantial obstacles. Casey, Cincinnati Women's Services, and numerous other precedents foreclose that argument as a matter of law. In short, this should be an easy case. It doesn't involve a novel issue of law that the Supreme Court and this court have never considered. It doesn't require speculation about the possible effects of a law that has never been enforced. All it requires is for this court to apply a directly controlling precedent to a material identical record. And that requires this court to reverse the district court's judgment and vacate its injunction. I welcome the court's questions. Thank you, counsel. Um, let's say you're right in every respect. Um, 
wouldn't that winning argument also justify a week-long waiting period? Your Honor, we, we think that it would. Um, the precise length of the waiting period was not important in Casey. It wasn't important to the district court in this case. The district court thought that a waiting period of any length um, what, what 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 limit does a state face, if any, when it comes to waiting period? I mean, obviously, it couldn't be a nine month waiting period. So what what would the waiting period? Are there any limits? The, the limit, Chief Judge Sutton, I believe, is the point at which the length of the waiting period actually prevents women from obtaining abortions. That's the, the legal standard that the court has to apply in applying the substantial obstacle test is whether uh, a large fraction of women are actually prevented from obtaining abortion. And so it's conceivable that the, a particular waiting period longer than 48 hours could, um, as applied, actually prevent women from obtaining an abortion. That's, of course, not the record that we have here. Um, we don't dispute that there may be cases where the court you know, does need to look at the record to determine the actual effects of a waiting period. But here, the length of the period is not appreciably greater than in Casey, and in fact, the district court um, enjoined the state from enforcing either a 48-hour waiting period or an alternative 24-hour waiting period that the statute provided would apply in the event that the 48-hour period was enjoined. The factual record uh, you acknowledged is more developed here, and one feature of that is the fact that Pennsylvania had so many more abortion providers in you know Pennsylvania circa 1992 than Tennessee today. Is that a material difference? No, Your Honor, we don't think that it is for a few reasons. Um, first, the, the, the record in Casey, or at least the district court's findings in Casey, did not mention the number of providers um, in Pennsylvania. What the district court did mention in Casey was that 42% uh, of women in Casey lived more than 50 miles from an abortion provider. So it seems that even if there were more providers um, in Pennsylvania, in Casey, that they were geographically concentrated in a way that still didn't make them easily accessible to most women. Um, second, the, the district court here was comparing apples and oranges. It was comparing the number of clinics in Tennessee to the number of providers in Pennsylvania. The, the number of total providers in Tennessee, which would include hospitals or individual OBGYNs who perform abortions in their, as part of their practice, but outside of a, a clinic setting um, is not in the record here, but we do know that there are such providers in Tennessee. So there, the district court couldn't have found as it did that there was a dramatic difference in the number of providers. We don't even know, at least on the record here, the number of providers in Tennessee. Um, and then also the district court aired and, and I see my time's up if I may finish briefly. Sure. Uh Keep it brief if you don't mind. Sure, and, and also the, the, the reason the number of providers would be relevant is to the extent that it actually affects women's ability to obtain abortions. And there's no evidence here that um, women in Tennessee were less able to obtain abortions than women in Pennsylvania. Okay, Judge Moore. Yes. In uh, Casey, the Supreme Court acknowledged that, quote, increased cost could become a substantial obstacle. At what point would, in your view, would increased cost become a substantial obstacle? Judge Moore, increased costs would become a substantial obstacle when there is evidence in the record that those increased costs actually prevented women from getting abortions. So suppose that increased costs prevented women 
from getting housing, utilities, groceries, or other essentials of life? Would that not be a substantial obstacle? It would not in our view, because the critical question is whether women have access and are able to obtain abortions. And I would... So, so if the cost of abortions went extremely high, uh, but still women had, you know, and in Tennessee, the vast bulk of women who are affected by um, abortions are low income women. If, if the cost went extremely high, but still they could use all their resources for an abortion, you would say that would, would be fine? We would say that under the governing legal standard, that would not present a substantial obstacle to abortion. And the governing legal standard that you're applying is the, the governing legal standard for the substantial obstacle test is whether a law deters women from obtaining abortions as surely as the law completely prohibited them. So it's whether the law actually prevents women from getting abortions. I, I would note uh, something that was not uh, mentioned in the party's briefs, and that is that Rebecca Terrell of Choices testified that Choices Memphis and seemingly other providers in the state as well offer financial assistance to women seeking abortions. There are, um, there are funds that are available for women who want to obtain financial assistance. Choices itself has a fund where it helps women pay for abortions um, if these private funds don't cover the costs. And it was even noted that funds are being set up to cover expenses like childcare and lost wages from work um, to the extent that those interfere. Did the district court find that, the, that uh, women and their families would be at grave risk of leaving basic needs unmet? The district court did make that finding, Your Honor. And have you shown that that was a clear error? We have not made that argument. Um, I would note that the district court did not indicate how many women um, fell into that category. You know, we don't think that there is some social, there's some testimony from some of the expert witnesses um, about that, that risk that's based. But again, I think that factual, we don't have to show that that factual finding is clearly erroneous because the standard is- Have you addressed have you addressed the stigmatic effects of the law? We have, we have argued, Your Honor, that the stigmatic effects are irrelevant for purposes of the undue burden standard, which focuses on. Thank you, Thank you Your Honor. Thank you. Judge Cole. Judge Cole, Judge your Cole. microphone is on mute. Thank you. Uh, it's been noted the overwhelming majority of the women seeking services, uh, Ms. Campbell, are of a low income uh, category. And the district court found, I think, that something like 60 to 80 percent of those low income women, uh, that it would be uh, insurmountable, as you noted, or, or difficult to surmount uh, accessing services. So how does that play? You, you say that Casey precludes as a matter of law, I think, uh, the plaintiffs prevailing here. Uh, but how does that really uh, play into the, the, the uh, undue burden analysis when you've got such a large number of women who are seeking services who, because of logistics and financial considerations, simply can't access services or it's almost impossible to access services? Sure, Judge Cole, what the district court found was that for low-income women, that the law was either insurmountable or difficult to surmount. 
the district court did not find that for all 60 to 80% of low income women seeking abortions in Tennessee, that they would not be able to access abortion. And the record would preclude any finding along those lines, just looking at the pure numbers and rates of, of women obtaining abortions since the waiting period went into effect. And so the, the fact that obtaining an abortion might be more difficult for low income women is the, that's the exact same argument that was pressed before the Supreme Court and Casey and Casey rejected that argument, explaining that, um, that the law might impose a particular burden on a certain group of women um, in Casey, low income women. And, and that's the same group of women that um, plaintiffs point to here does not make it a substantial obstacle. Um, under the undue burden standard. And because Casey held that, you know, that that's the same conclusion that the, the court is required to reach here. Um, there's not a material difference in the record with respect to the effect of the law on low-income women. Well, I mean, there's a difference, isn't there, in the number of, as it's been noted, the number of uh, abortion providers in Pennsylvania as opposed to Tennessee. In Tennessee, it's a very small number uh, as I recall, and you may have made some reference to there being lack of clarity in the record, but in Pennsylvania, it was a much larger number. Does that have an impact on your uh, response? Judge Cole, we don't believe it does. And, and I'll um, repeat a little bit of what I, um, what I responded to Chief Judge Sutton and then elaborate a bit uh, that, as you mentioned, there is a lack of clarity because the district court was comparing the number of providers in Pennsylvania to the number of clinics in Tennessee. And those are two different figures. Um, we don't know, and based on the record here, how many providers there are in Tennessee. But more importantly, it, it's that, that number is relevant only to the extent that women are prevented from getting abortions. And in Tennessee, if I may briefly conclude, Judge Cole, or Chief Judge Sutton, yes. um, I, the, the, here there's no evidence that women couldn't get abortions. And just based on how the clinics are distributed in the state of Tennessee, every woman is within at least a two hour drive. Um, and in Casey, 40% of women in Pennsylvania, notwithstanding this large number of providers were still more than 50 miles away from an abortion provider. Thank you, Judge Clay. Um, can you tell us what our standard of review is here in terms of uh evaluating the obstacle that um, individuals seeking abortion uh, 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 might encounter um, uh, in terms of uh, whether we're looking at a balancing test or how we're weighing undue burdens uh, imposed upon the uh, person who would, who would obtain an abortion. Just what, what's your position regarding the, the um, stand the legal standard that, that we're, uh, we're to be following here. Sure, Judge Clay, our position is that as this court held in both EMW and as the en banc court held in preterm Cleveland, the standard that governs is the chief justice's concurring opinion in the June medical decision, which applies Casey's traditional undue burden standard, not um, the benefits versus burdens balancing test. And under that traditional undue burden standard, the plaintiffs have the burden of showing that the law is not rationally related to legitimate state interests and that the law would pose a substantial obstacle um, to abortion. The plaintiffs have not carried that burden here. So in your view, we're wedded to the um, Chief Justice's uh, undue burden uh, standard, uh, uh, even though he was the only justice to uh, 
to enunciate that standard uh, in that case. That's correct, Judge Clay, and we think that follows from uh, an app straightforward application of the marks analysis um, under which when there is a fractured opinion that the opinion of the judge concurring or justice concurring um, in the decision on the narrowest grounds prevails. Um, Chief Justice Roberts opinion is the narrowest ground for um, invalidating the law at issue in June medical because it invalidates it only because it did it imposed a substantial obstacle to abortion not you know, because the, the burden exceeded the benefits. And I'll, I'll note too that the, the Chief Justice applied principles of stare decisis and, you know, and held invalidated Louisiana's law under principles of stare decisis, even though he was in the dissent in um, Whole Woman's Health. But the, the only part of Whole Woman's Health to which he applied principles of stare decisis was the Whole Woman Health's majorities application of the traditional undue burden standard, because that was the part of the opinion that was um, consistent with Casey and actually followed Casey. And Whole Woman's Health didn't purport to overrule Casey, um, and in fact purported to be following Casey. Well, he, he purported to be following stare decisis, but the, the problem with your interpretation of Marx is that uh, in a school desegregation case, a concurring uh, justice could uh, um, decide uh, or, or state that Brown versus Board of Education was wrongfully decided. And depending upon uh, how the other opinions of the other justices were framed, um, arguably one justice could uh, over, override uh, all these years, uh, all the, the jurisprudence of uh, the followed Brown versus Board. Uh, isn't that a bit of a problem with your interpretation of Marx? Judge Clay, we don't believe it is. And that's because, you know, Chief Justice Roberts here didn't purport to be overruling Whole Woman's Health. He took Whole Woman's Health at its word that it was applying Casey, not departing from Casey, not applying a different standard. And so the, the Chief Justice's concurring opinion doesn't overrule any precedent. It simply applies Whole Woman's Health, um, which applied the un traditional undue burden standard for Casey. And that's the standard that we believe governs here under this court's precedence. Of, of course, what's important is whether it's actually overruled, not whether the justice in his opinion purports to overrule precedent or not. Uh, you would at least agree with that, I, I, I presume. Well, we agree that the that applying the Marx analysis, a very straightforward application of the Marx analysis requires that this court adhere to the Chief Justice's concurring opinion. All right, uh, no further questions, Chief Justice. Judge Gibbons. Um, Ms. Campbell, I wanna ask you about another difference in this case from the situation in, in Casey. Um, medication abortions were not available at the time Casey was decided, is that right or not? That's right. The okay. FDA did not approve Mifepristone until after Casey. Well, I gather from some of your other argument, you really don't think that's very relevant here because presumably a woman who is delayed beyond the point in getting her to an abortion, beyond the point when she could get a medication abortion, but still gets an abortion, is your position 
that the her inability to get the preferred kind of abortion she wants is not to be considered at all as a part of a substantial obstacle? Our, our position, and this follows from the Supreme Court's decision in Gonzales, is that what's, what's important is whether um, when a particular abortion procedure is unavailable, whether there is a safe alternative that remains available. Um, so in Gonzales, the partial birth abortion abortion ban act you know, was not unconstitutional because uh, DNE, traditional DNE abortions remained available and the court considered that to be a safe alternative. Here, I mean, we're not, first of all, let me just clarify that we're not even talking in this case, of course, about a ban on medication abortions. Medication abortions are still available at all the clinics that provide them um, in Tennessee up to 10 weeks um, at the time of trial. And so this isn't a ban, this is just a delay that may push some women past that mark um, but even for those women who are pushed past the 10-week cutoff, they are able to obtain a surgical abortion, which plaintiffs' witnesses uh, testified in this case is very, very safe at all gestational ages, um, including at later gestational ages. There is evidence in the record that the medication abortion is safer, however, even if the later abortions are also safe, right? There is some evidence to that effect. Um, plaintiffs have said that there is an increased risk presented by surgical abortions for some women. They haven't argued that there is a significant risk, however. Um, you know, I think that the most um, on-point precedent for the medication abortion argument that plaintiffs are making is this court's decision in DeWine, which involved a law that had the effect of making, uh, making medication abortions completely unavailable from 50 to 63 days LMP, um, when abortion providers before that, that regulation went into effect were providing them at that point. And this court held that that was not a substantial obstacle because there was no evidence in the record that women who couldn't get a medication abortion during that time period would be unable or unwilling to get a surgical abortion. Judge Griffin. I have no questions for Ms. Campbell. Judge Kethledge. I have no questions, thank you. Judge White. Judge White, your microphone is on mute. Um, so I just want to be clear, your position is that any burden is constitutional as long as it doesn't uh, cause a substantial number of women to be unable to get an abortion. Is that correct? That's correct. And I presume, though, that that burden has to that there has to be some rational relationship. You can see that, right? Yes, we, we agree that the law has to be reasonably related to legitimate state interests. Um, in that regard, and I understand this cuts against the, uh, the burden, but if it's shown that 99% of women, maybe even 100% of women who experience the two-day waiting period, nevertheless, uh, 
want to have an abortion or that the same percentage of women uh, equivocate as with or without the waiting period, does that affect the rational relationship of the law to the purpose? No, Judge White, um, it, it doesn't. You know, there are several state interests that are furthered by the waiting period law. Well, one of those is protecting unborn life um, such that the waiting period may persuade some women who had planned to have an abortion not to. Another interest is making sure that women who are making the decision to abort are doing so um, based on complete information and with an adequate time to reflect on that decision. So the waiting period could achieve that second interest, even if no women were persuaded to choose childbirth over abortion. And it also shows respect for res respect for unborn life. Um, so in addition to protecting unborn life, there's also an interest in just showing respect for unborn life. And the law furthers that by importing, uh, recognizing the importance of this decision and its gravity um, and ensuring that it is made with careful and deliberate reflection. So your position would be that even if it were uh, irrefutably shown that it does not affect women's decision and women have the same information with or without it and uh, it doesn't increase their reflection or anything like that, the mere public statement that uh, this is a weighty decision would be enough to make it constitutional. Yes, we believe that it would. And um, in terms of uh, the type of questions that Judge Gibbons was asking, um, is there any burden short of making it impossible uh, or, or, or having, yeah, making it impossible to have abortion that would be unconstitutional? No, and the, the Supreme Court has never held a, an abortion law unconstitutional based only on the sorts of burdens that make it more difficult to obtain an abortion but do not actually prevent women from obtaining an abortion. We cited um, in our supplemental en banc brief decisions of the Supreme Court that have actually invalidated um, abortion laws. And in all of those, the court found that women would actually be prevented from obtaining abortions, not that it would just become more costly or difficult to obtain them. So that position we think is, is required by Supreme Court precedent um, so, and by- Okay, so you could have a law that said that um, under the theory that if time passes, the woman will get more attached to the fetus. You could have a law that says that uh, any abortions have to be performed in the, uh, say, the, the very end of the second trimester. You could require women to carry the baby until then, when the abortion would be uh, carry a much greater risk, be more emotionally traumatic, etc but that would be constitutional because you'd be able to have it. That, that kind of law would present, I think a slightly different question, perhaps more akin to laws where a particular method um, of abortion is prohibited and the court you know, asks whether other safe alternatives remain available. You know, if it were the case that by 
delaying abortions until the very last minute that that there likely would be evidence in that case that women were actually prevented from obtaining an abortion. Um, so, you know, I think it would depend on the record. I think the standard would remain well, the I'm same. Asking you, I'm asking you hypothetically that if they still wanted it at that time, they could get it. And we know that it's relatively safe because it happens all the time. So would that be constitutional if you, if you accept those facts? I think that laws banning abortions at certain points do present a different situation. I think that it could be um, constitutional given that what the right that is protected is the woman's ultimate decision to obtain an abortion. And the Supreme Court has said in the past that what women must have is an effective opportunity to obtain an abortion. And so if that Judge still- Wait. Judge White, are you prepared to let Judge Strance ask questions or should- I, I am sorry, I should have- No, 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 no. no. But I'll let you ask one more. I just wanted to make sure you saw no, the No, I'm I'm done. I thought she was answering my question, so I'm good. Judge Strange. Um, I'd like to follow up on the evidence of burdens on women. Um, is it your position that the decision of the court below to not accept as credible or relevant the testimony of some of the of some of your experts, Coleman and Pedraza, for example? Um, what role does that decision play in your analysis? Judge Strange, well, we think that that decision was wrong for the reasons we explained in our opening um, our opening brief. You know, we don't think that the court needs to reach that issue here. We recognize that credibility determinations by a district court are entitled to um, substantial deference on appeal. And we, the, the, we can win this case and should win this case, even if those credibility determinations are not disturbed. Um, that for, for a few reasons. First, you know, we were not required to put on any evidence showing that the law um, is reasonably related to the state's legitimate interests. That's an inquiry that really occurs in the abstract and not based on the record. Um, and the Supreme Court's holding in Casey that Casey's 24-hour waiting period furthered two legitimate state interests, both of which are being advanced by Tennessee here, um, provides as a matter of law that we survive rational basis review. And even if it were appropriate to look at record evidence, the testimony of plaintiff's own witnesses, which the district court found to be um, fully credible, shows that the law furthers some the state's interests um, in a couple of respects. Plaintiff's witnesses agreed that there are studies out there, many studies in fact, um, is what Dr. Biggs testified, that show that abortion causes adverse outcomes um, for women's health. Plaintiff's witnesses also acknowledged that some women experience regret. Um, they thought that number was small, but even the district court did not find that regret was non-existent. And so even if the law- you know, only let, let me ask you in this time, where the role of stigma falls in your analysis. Stigma, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the stigma related to your experts. The, um, the idea that experts have, have an ability or a propriety of opining when those experts say of women that I would never um, perform an ab abortion for a woman's health or to save her life or um, 
or and I would not even prescribe birth control. And I, I'm just struggling with the place in this case of the treatment of women as by experts uh, as not even being able in their adult lives to seek birth control. Um, so tell me how stigma relates to your argument. Your Honor, we believe that stigma, I guess to the extent the district court found that the waiting period stigmatizes women, um, that that is irrelevant to the undue burden standard unless there is some showing that that stigmatic effect actually affects a woman's ability to obtain an abortion. That's what the focus has to be on um, in, in applying the substantial obstacle test. My time's up. Thank you. Judge Donald. Ms. Campbell, I know you have said that the waiting period um, is constitutional so long as it doesn't prevent the woman from having an abortion, uh, but is the riskiness along the time continuum, continuum a factor that, that has to be considered? You know, for example, as one goes along, uh, I believe the evidence is that it becomes more risky. Is that a factor that should be considered in the undue burden analysis? It should be consi considered insofar as those risks for either prevent a woman from obtaining abortion or um, constitute a significant health risk such that a health exception would be required. Tennessee's health exception um, in the waiting period law is materially identical to the health exception that the Supreme Court upheld in Casey. Plaintiffs have argued here that it's exceedingly narrow, but it's in fact exactly the health exception that the Supreme Court found sufficient in Casey. So to the extent any risks are significant, the health exception allows an abortion to occur without delay. Is the 48-hour period simply an arbitrary uh, period under the law? And, and if not, why wouldn't um, 72 hours, you know, um, 400 or whatever. Why, why um, is this just an arbitrary period, waiting period? The, the legislature adopted that waiting period, you know, after holding hearings and receiving testimony by various witnesses. Um, it's no more arbitrary than a 24 hour period is. And again, the district court enjoined both the 48 hour period and the alternative 24 hour period um, that the law provided should go into effect in the event of an injunction of the 48 hour period. And again, I just want to have you uh, in the remaining seconds again articulate the um, the particular state interest that is being furthered by this forty eight hour period. And I understand you've referenced back to Casey, but for Tennessee, what is that? What is that state interest that is being advanced in this law? There are three interests, two of them are sort of part and parcel of the same, but the, the first interest is protecting unborn life. And that is you know, persuading some women to choose childbirth over abortion. And the Supreme Court in Casey acknowledged that that is a legitimate state interest and that even if a law provides no maternal health benefits, that the, the state can still enact that law to further its interest in persuading a woman to choose childbirth over abortion. Um, 
related to that interest is the state's interest in showing respect for unborn life, even if a woman doesn't ultimately choose childbirth, acknowledging that this is a decision with gravity um, for which you know, time should be taken and care should be taken. And the other interest is in, um, in, is in protecting women's health by preventing the adverse outcomes that could come from making a rash decision or uninformed decision. Thank you. There's the par. No questions, thank you. Judge Bush. Uh, yes, Ms. Campbell, I would like to follow up with some of your uh, questions that you were received from Judge Clay uh, with regard to the legal standard in the case. Uh, I believe you indicated that the correct or the standard that should be applied would be Chief Justice Roberts' decision, uh, a concurrence in the uh, in in uh, the June medical case. Is that correct? That's correct, Judge Bush. What if we did apply though the plurality opinions standard here? Would that make any difference in the outcome? No, we don't believe that it would. Um, and we argued in our reply brief that even if the benefits versus burdens balancing test applies, that we should still prevail under that standard. What is the difference as far as burden of proof? What do you see the difference between the two standards as to who has the burden of proof? I think the plaintiff, because this is a facial constitutional challenge, the plaintiff still bears the burden of proof. Perhaps the only difference is in Know, the benefits part of the analysis. I think under the traditional rational basis review, which clearly applies if the undue burden, the traditional undue burden standard applies, um, the, the state certainly has no obligation to come forward with evidence showing that the law um, benefits any women. And, um, and with respect to uh, the record of, of Dr. Is it Dr. Wallet? Was she, is that how you pronounce the, the uh, plaintiff's expert or, or fact witness? As far as I'm aware. Okay, Dr. Wallet, uh, she was questioned regarding the approximately, I guess around 2,300 women who did not return for the second appointment. Are you familiar with that testimony? I am. And she says that um, she didn't know why they didn't come back. We don't track patients who don't come back for appointments. Uh, is there anything in the record that you're aware of as to why any of these patients did not come back for their second appointments? There's no evidence in the record because plaintiffs don't, don't track them. There is evidence um, in the form of a, a study of Utah's 72-hour waiting period that women who were subject to that waiting period in Utah, about 8% of those women who remained pregnant did not come back to obtain an abortion. And when asked the reason for not coming back, 70% um, of those women said that they changed their mind. Now, the district court said that the state hadn't shown that those results could be applied in Tennessee, but there's that, that decision was clearly erroneous. There's no reason why those results couldn't be applied into Tennessee. And in, in fact, plaintiff's expert, um, Dr. Biggs, I believe, acknowledged that um, the results could apply in Tennessee. What finding did the district court make as to the reasons, or did the district court make any finding as to the reasons why the women did not come back. If I recall, the district court you know, speculated that women might not come back because it was too difficult to come back because they were no longer pregnant, um, you know, they had miscarried or had an ectopic pregnancy. Um, the same sort of speculation that the plaintiffs, uh, fact witnesses themselves testified to, but there's, they, they don't track them, so we don't know. And plaintiffs witnesses acknowledged that at least some of the women who didn't return could have changed their mind. And was there any evidence to support that finding by the district court? No, Your Honor. Thank you. Judge Larson, my questions. 
Um, Ms. Kimball, in the 25 years since the Supreme Court held that waiting periods were constitutional in Casey, has any appellate court ever struck down a waiting period? Not, Your Honor, a pure waiting period. The closest, um, that, the closest decision um, that, that I can point to is the Seventh Circuit's uh, somewhat recent decision that invalidated an Indiana law that required an ultrasound to be performed at least 18 hours before the abortion was performed. But the Seventh Circuit ruled, um, reached that conclusion by applying the now rejected benefits versus burdens balancing test. And the Supreme Court has since vacated that decision and remanded. And my understanding is that uh, plaintiffs have agreed to dismiss that claim going forward because they've now um, they've now acquired the ultrasound equipment needed to be able to comply with that requirement. Okay, and um, Casey with a 24 hour waiting period, do, do you understand the appellees as having made any claim that there's a material difference between 24 and 48 hours? No, and in fact, plaintiff's witnesses all testified that there is no material difference between a 24 hour period and a 48 hour period. Thank you. Judge Albanian. Uh, I've got a question about um, rational basis. Um, obviously this, the standard, um, you know, the state's rationale can be abstract. It can be hypothetical, can be dreamed up in a law office, whatever it is. And the state doesn't have an obligation to provide empirical evidence about actual motivation or actual problem. You know, that's all, all from we optical and all that line of cases. But can the plaintiff, what if the plaintiff produces evidence that rebuts the rational relationship? What if the plaintiff actually puts in the evidence and purports to carry a burden? Is that, do we ignore that and just go back to the hypothetical? Or can the plaintiff actually put it in issue with evidence? Your Honor, I think that that, that the inquiry must occur in the abstract. So unless the, the principle that the plaintiff wants to put before the court through evidence is um, so well known or well understood that you know, the court would reach the same conclusion in the abstract, I don't think the evidence that a plaintiff puts in matters. Is there a case, is there a Supreme Court case that says whatever the plaintiff does is also irrelevant? I mean, most of them seem to be worded in the defendant does not have to do blank. The state does not have to provide empirical evidence. So what if the plaintiff does it? Do, is there a case that is clear on that? Um, I, I cannot point to one. You know, I'm not aware of any case that imposes any sort of a burden shifting mechanism, you know, as is the case in other areas of the law that would require the state to come forward with evidence if a plaintiff does. Okay, let me, let me ask you another question. If, um, let's say there's a waiting period and let's say the reason the state gives is that, or part of the reason is that you want kind of rational decision-making and um, the longer period women may change their minds. And let's say that that law is um, wildly successful and the number of abortions falls by a half or something. Um, is that problematic under current doctrine or does the plaintiff then have to trace the drop in abortions to delay per se, as opposed to change decision-making. I mean, in other words, the law is designed to be an obstacle in a way and, and it works. Is that problematic? It would be problematic only if the plaintiffs could show, you know, through record evidence that the reason numbers dropped is because of 
obstacles created by the law and not because the state was successful in persuading women to choose childbirth over abortion. But that would be a plaintiff, that would be the plaintiff's burden? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Okay, thank you. Judge Raider. Uh, no questions, thank you. Judge Murphy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious how um, uh, your interpretation of a substantial obstacle test works in practice. Um, so I, under, I understand you, your interpretation of a substantial obstacle to be uh, so, uh, a, a pragmatic prohibition rather than a legal prohibition on abortion. And I'm curious how that would apply, say, to um, a regulation of uh, uh, an abortion facility that everybody would say is, is uh, perfectly uh, plausible or perfectly important, like a, a rule that fire extinguishers be uh, uh, placed at all healthcare facilities. If, if, if you trace that rule to a particular woman who said it, it, it priced the woman um, out of the abortion care market because it, it increased the prices too much and she was a lower income individual, would that, would that satisfy the substantial obstacle test under your view because it would uh, have the pragmatic effect of prohibiting her from getting an abortion? No, Your Honor, I think the undue burden standard is, is really applicable to abortion regulations. So regulations that regulate abortion as such or abortion clinics as such. And well, not well, to- well, okay, I'll change the hypothetical just to maybe it was like a doctor should perform an abortion like the, the law upheld in Missouric um, uh, versus Armstrong. If that, um, if that rule applied uh, to increase the cost, then, then the same question would and a, a particular person couldn't obtain an abortion, would that, um, would that uh, satisfy the substantial obstacle test, even though everybody agrees it would be um, perfectly legitimate? You know, the, the, courts, the Supreme Court's precedents dealing with public, public funding um, of abortion you know, make clear that the, the state is not responsible for, for alleviating um, any pre-existing burdens that might exist. And I think when you're talking about costs, um, of abortion, you know, the, 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 that, a, that an abortion may be more costly doesn't necessarily mean that the law itself um, substantially burdens access to abortion. So, but it would be the combination of the cost versus the regulation. And so that's what I'm struggling with and is, is when is a regulation that in the abstract seems perfectly plausible, but then as applied to lower income individuals uh, could, could um, have a, a pragmatic or practical effect of prohibiting them from obtaining an abortion. When 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 do those things in combination? Is it is it do, that, that what I'm trying to get at is is there an, an inherent benefits burdens balancing in the substantial obstacle um, test too? Because maybe we would say that the benefits there, um, even though it had the pragmatic of effect for cert, certain small class of individuals, the benefits there would be enough to recognize that they're valid. Well, and, and perhaps the result there would be that, you know, that would satisfy an even more stringent standard of scrutiny, um, you know, being strict scrutiny, because if it was needed to further an, a compelling interest, um, then it would survive review. And that is certainly our position that even um, laws that may be an undue burden could still be permissible um, if they survived a higher form of scrutiny. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Thank Campbell. Ms. Um, Katz. May it please the court, Autumn Katz for the plaintiff's appellees. I would like to respond to two points the state has raised in this appeal. 
First, the state claims that Planned Parenthood versus Casey dictates the outcome of this case. But Casey did not sanction all waiting period laws, and it certainly didn't sanction the kind of extreme delays imposed by Tennessee's law. The factual findings in this case are based on a different factual record and are entitled to strong deference on appeal. Second, the state claims that the delay law cannot be held facially unconstitutional unless it prevents a significant number of patients from obtaining an abortion. But such a requirement would be inconsistent with Supreme Court precedent. Turning to the first point, the state argues that Casey requires reversal here, but Casey considered the constitutionality of a different law than Tennessee's and the court's holding was expressly limited to the record before it. The district court in Casey did not find that Pennsylvania's waiting period presented a substantial obstacle for any group of women. And on that basis, the court declined to strike down the law facially. The state argues that the record here is no different than the record in Casey by ignoring the fact that Tennessee's delay law is twice as long as Pennsylvania's and by brushing aside the district court's extensive factual findings regarding the burdens imposed, including many burdens that were never part of the record in Casey. The district court found that the delay law has prevented patients from receiving abortions at plaintiff's clinics while no such finding was made in Casey. The court found that the delay law caused an increase in the rate of second trimester abortions, which are more invasive, more expensive, and medically riskier. These rates went up even as the overall rate of abortion in Tennessee was declining. The record in Casey did not contain evidence showing a significant increase in later abortions. The district court found that patients frequently miss the cutoff for medication abortion as a result of the delay law. No such evidence was considered in Casey. The court found that the delay law imposed increased health risks for thousands of Tennessee patients who have medical conditions affected by pregnancy. Such evidence was never considered in Casey. The district court found that 60 to 80% of Tennessee abortion patients are living in poverty and struggle to pay for even the most basic household necessities. No evidence about the rates of poverty among abortion patients was presented in Casey. The district court also found that wait times have almost tripled as a result of the delay law, forcing patients to endure delays of nearly a month and sometimes longer. As the state points out, wait times were also considered in Casey. And in fact, the Casey court was troubled by the impact of the much shorter wait times that were imposed by Pennsylvania's law. Turning to the second point, defendants argue that the delay law must be upheld unless it prevents a significant number of patients from having an abortion. But the Supreme Court has never required this. In June Medical, the plurality rejected Louisiana's argument that it was necessary to prove the challenge law made it nearly impossible to obtain care. Both the plurality and the chief justice invalidated Louisiana's law based on obstacles short of prevention, including longer wait times, increased crowding, and increased health risk. And in Whole Woman's Health, the court also considered the effect of burdens other than prevention, including fewer doctors, longer wait times, and increased driving distances. In both cases, the court struck down the challenge laws facially. In this case, the district court struck down Tennessee's law because it imposes burdens just as severe as those in June Medical and Whole Woman's Health. But if this court believes that the large fraction test has not been met, it can still grant more tailored as applied relief for those groups of patients 
for whom the delay law is particularly burdensome. The record evidence in this case demonstrates that Tennessee's delay law imposes heavy burdens. It creates extreme delays that push some patients into having later, more invasive and medically riskier abortions. And for the 60 to 80% of patients who are poor or low income, the financial and logistical barriers are either insurmountable or surmounted with great difficulty. As Chief Justice Roberts emphasized in June Medical, the question is not whether this court would reach the same findings on the same record, but whether the district court clearly erred. Because it did not, the district court's decision should be affirmed. I invite your questions. Yes, thank you, Ms. Katz. Um, you know, at, at the facial challenge standard has created quite a few problems for federal judges across the country. Which, what's your recommendation as to how to handle the denominator? Is it any woman who might seek an abortion or only women who might find the regulation to create a type of obstacle? How, how do we do this? How do we implement the facial challenge standard in an abortion context? Uh the, the way the court um, handles the, the large fraction test is to look at the number of patients affected, and that is the denominator, and the, the number of patients who are unduly burdened by the law creates the numerator. So the uh, denominator, is it all women seeking abortions or only women seeking abortions who are hindered in seeking an abortion? Uh, that depends on the particular regulation that's being uh, challenged, but in this How case, in this case, in this case, uh, the district court found um, that the denominator could be all women who are seeking abortions in Tennessee, and certainly the court found that all women seeking abortions in Tennessee are affected by the delay law because how how would how is it really a large fraction that have a substantial obstacle? That that seems quite implausible to me. Well, the district court found that the, the large fraction test was met here because the delay law imposes severe burdens for all low-income women who seek abortions. The district court found that for these patients, the costs and the inconvenience and the logistical burdens of the two-trip requirement are either insurmountable or they are only surmounted with great difficulty. And, and 60 to 80% of Tennessee patients are, are poor or low income, and that's clearly a large fraction of patients. Okay, thank you. Judge Moore. Yes, to build on uh, Judge Sutton's question on the de proper denominator, um, you've explained what the district court said was the proper denominator. What is your view as to what would be the proper denominator if you were uh, looking at this fresh? Um, the, the plaintiffs don't disagree that that was certainly one um, valid way to conceptualize um, the, the large fraction analysis. Uh, again, this court um, uh, has said that the, the, the large fraction analysis is more conceptual than mathematical, um, but certainly by looking at the number of patients who are severely burdened, um, it is clear that a large fraction, that, that the large fraction test is met here because there are so many patients who are poor or low income. They make up the vast majority of abortion patients in Tennessee. So as I asked your, um, co your, your colleague, the Supreme Court in Casey acknowledged that increased costs could become a substantial obstacle. Um, 
when would that happen according to your view? Uh, certainly, this is one case where increased costs are, are significant um, and pose a significant obstacle for patients because um, the, the burdens of the two-trip requirement uh, force patients to pay for additional travel, uh, to make arrangements for um, uh, child care, to, to lose wages, to, to make arrangements for time off work. And those burdens are in addition to um, the cost of the procedure itself, which the district court found um, at least um, for, for one clinic and for, um, for patients, uh, they had to pay essentially double what the price was b before the delay law took effect. Um, but prices increased at all, at all of the plaintiff um, clinics. So, um, Increased costs is one of the factors the court considered here, um, and and uh, as your honor pointed out, certainly the court in Casey recognized that increased costs could at some point become a substantial obstacle. And and clearly in this case, it was not just a matter of of a slight increase in costs, um, because uh, looking at both the 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 significant increase in the cost of the procedure itself, um, as well as the significant costs of all of the um, arrangements that have to be made uh, for, for the two separate visits. It was not clearly erroneous for the court to find that um, there were significant uh, increased costs that, that created a substantial obstacle here. Can you address the stigmatic effect here? Sure, Your Honor. Um, the Supreme Court has never said that stigmatic injuries are an irrelevant burden. Uh, there was unrebutted testimony presented um, at trial regarding the stigmatic harms that are imposed by Tennessee's delay law, and it was not um, it was not clear error for the court to consider those injuries alongside all of the other burdens, including longer wait times, increased costs, pushing patients to have later abortions, in finding that the delay law imposed a substantial obstacle here. Thank you. Judge Cole. I have no questions. Thank you. Judge Clay. Um, counsel, uh, how would you respond to the way in which um, Chief Justice uh, of the state's um, um, interpretation of the way in which Chief Justice Roberts' concurring opinion uh, in June a medical should be applied in connection with the Marks uh, case standard in, in the context of this case. In this case, it doesn't um, actually make a difference in the outcome because the district court here found based on the extensive evidentiary record of harms um, that the delay law imposes a substantial obstacle with or without balancing. And, and based on that substantial obstacle finding, if this court follows Justice Roberts' decision, um, this court can certainly affirm based on the, the substantial obstacle finding, which was amply supported by the record, um, the district court found that the delay law prevents some patients from accessing abortion and creates other uh, significant obstacles, including lengthy wait times, increased health risks, and pushing patients uh, into having later, uh, more invasive and riskier abortion procedures. And these, in fact, are the same types of burdens that the court uh, credited in June Medical and in Whole Woman's Health. No further questions, Judge Simon. 
Judge Gibbons. I have no questions. Judge Griffin. Uh, Ms. Katz, uh, isn't the strongest evidence that the Tennessee law does not create a substantial obstacle uh, to a woman's right to abortion? Isn't the strongest evidence the empirical evidence that exists that the law was in effect three years before the trial in this case? And the evidence shows that the number of, of abortions in Tennessee decreased only slightly during those three years. No, Your Honor. Um, first of all, the district court did make specific findings that some patients have been prevented altogether from having an abortion as a result of the delay law. The court found that patients have been pushed beyond the provider's gestational cutoff. Um, the court also the, found the providers, the providers cutoff. I mean, why, why should we look at that? I mean, if, if, if a company decides to have their own standards, I, I don't see how the, the Tennessee law would be ruled unconstitutional because a provider decides to have their own, their own rules or standards. The Supreme Court has made clear that the undue burden analysis has to be based on the real world evidence and, and not speculative guesswork or hypotheticals. Um, and in fact, in June Medical, the, the court considered the impact of the challenged Louisiana law um, in light of the provider's existing practices, and in particular, the fact that only one of the physician, one of the only physicians in Louisiana stopped providing care at 18 weeks and not at the Louisiana legal limit of 20 weeks. And so certainly it was not clear error here for the court to look at the provider's gestational cutoff because um, the reality, the practical <laughs> effect of the delay law means that uh, after 19 days and six weeks, there, there are no abortion providers. Um, in Tennessee who provide care and patients must go out of state. Okay. Now, do you claim that there is a constitutional right to a particular type of abortion? Um, I, I assume you're asking specifically with, in, in reference to um, losing the option of having a medication abortion. That, which that, that did come up. So do you claim that there is a constitutional right to a medication abortion? Um, certainly losing the ability to choose to have a non-invasive medication abortion is a relevant factor in, in the undue burden test. Um, and in fact, it was one of the burdens that was considered by the court in June medical. Um, and so here it was not a clear error for the district court to consider the fact that some patients were pushed beyond the cutoff for medication abortion um, alongside all of the other burdens uh, including increased driving distances, longer wait times, uh, increased costs, and being pushed to have um, later medically riskier procedures, um, which I think is an answer to your earlier question. You asked how we know that the delay law is actually creating burdens when, when there, there were um, only a slight decrease in the number of uh, total abortions that were happening in Tennessee, but there was significant increase in the number of abortions happening uh, at later gestations. That was one of the district court's clear findings here as, as to the burdens of the delay law. Okay, thank you. Judge Kethledge. I have no questions, thank you. Judge White. Um. So we know that the state can regulate abortion. Um, how would you define an undue burden? 
what makes these burdens undo? And what do we look for as, as a court? Um, the, the burdens here are undue because they are uh, substantially the same <laughs> types of burdens that uh, the court in Whole Woman's Health and in June Medical um, found imposed a substantial obstacle. Um, and so for the same reasons that the, the laws challenged in those cases were unconstitutional, that the district court here did not clearly err in striking down Tennessee's delay law. It imposes um, a host of, of burdens on patients um, and, and creates no benefit. It doesn't improve their decision-making in any way. It doesn't um, otherwise further the state's interest in potential life. And so based on the record here, it was not clear error for the court to find that the delay law um, imposes a substantial obstacle and is unconstitutional. So that's if we're doing the weighing. And how would you articulate it under Chief Justice Roberts' standard? Um, the, the burdens are exactly the same. The district court, um, there was ample evidence in the, in the record um, as to the substantial obstacles that were imposed here. Um, and so even, even if we put aside uh, the state interests, the court found that um, with or without balancing, the delay law imposed a substantial obstacle. And, and this court can affirm on, on those grounds. But I mean, surely there are some regulations that would be constitutional that might have into, might have burdens that come with them. Yes, Your Honor, but that yeah. is not this case. And what's the, what would the difference be? Um, the, the undue burden standard is 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 certainly um, been described as as fact specific and record de de dependent and and here the court found um, a whole host of burdens. The delay law ca caused patients to experience extreme delays of um, up to four weeks and at times longer. Um, the the delay law caused a significant increase in abortions at later gestations. Um, from 2014 to 2016, the number of abortions or the rate of abortions um, that were happening after 13 weeks almost doubled, um, and the number of abortions uh, that were uh, occurring after 15 weeks almost um, more than more than doubled. Um, the, the court specifically found that many patients lost um, the option of having a medication abortion altogether, which is strongly preferred and sometimes medically indicated. Um, the court found that patients would be subjected to increased medical risks. And so based on all of the, all of the many burdens here, um, it was, uh, clear, this was a clear case um, where there is a substantial obstacle. This is not a case where there was just um, perhaps a, a, a regulation that makes abortion slightly more difficult or, or slightly more expensive to access. Thank you. Judge Strange. Um, do you know if a woman living in Knoxville, Tennessee, misses the cutoff for medication abortion, do you know how far she would have to travel to receive an appointment for a surgical abortion? Um, it, it, it depends. Um, the, the providers who offer uh, 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 surgical abortions um, are located in um, Nashville. 
um, and in Memphis. And there is also a doctor's office in Bristol. Um, the, the factual record in this case shows that the Bristol provider um, pr provides somewhere between three and 400 abortions a year. Um, so most likely that patient- abortions or, or combined medication and surgical? Combined, combined. That's the total number. So um, if the patient wasn't able to be seen in Bristol, which is I think a two hour drive um, roughly uh, from Knoxville, um, then they would have to travel to either Nashville or Memphis. So three to eight hours, to seven maybe. Six, six or seven, yes. Okay, thank you. Judge Donald? No questions, thank you. Judge Thapar? Good afternoon, Ms. Katz. Do you agree, um, I know you say under any standard you win, but do you agree after preterm in EMW, the law of our circuit is that the chief's concurrence in June and his discussion of the KC test is controlling? That is what this court has held, yes. Um, can I, I wanna follow up on Judge Griffin's questions, if you'll recall them, but I'll try and, um, you mentioned that some number of cutoff would occur with at a gestational age for the providers. So some providers have a gestational age limit, or they all do. But as you indicated, the waiting period could push it past. What number of women had to wait in such a way that it pushed it past the limit? Are you asking how many patients have been prevented altogether from, from receiving an abortion? Because of, yes, because of the gestational age limit. Um, I don't believe the court quantified the, the precise number of patients who have been prevented. I think the court said that that's um, uh, based, on, based on the evidentiary record and the testimony, it's, it's difficult to ascertain the exact number, but the court certainly found that some patients have been prevented um, and it was um, consistent <laughs> for, the, for the court to find that some patients have been prevented without quantifying the exact number. That's um, exactly what the Supreme Court said in Whole Woman's Health and in June Medical. Why wouldn't that be, if it's some small number or some number that we're totally, we have no idea what it is, why wouldn't that be the basis for an as-applied versus a facial challenge? Uh, the plaintiffs here have requested an alternative as applied relief as specifically as to um, those patients who would be timed out um, uh, from having an abortion at all in the state in, in the event that this court um, believes that the large fraction test has not been met that at a minimum patients who would be um, prevented altogether from having an abortion in the state and would be forced to travel out of state um, should be entitled to relief. You agree that in 2013, there were 1,600 plus less abortions than the year before, and in 2014, 1,800 plus less than the year before in Tennessee, correct? I, I don't have the data in front of me, but that, I believe that is correct. And um, that wasn't tied to the waiting period, correct? Because it wasn't enacted yet. Correct. The waiting period was enacted in 2015. And you also agree in the three years after the waiting period was enacted combined for which they have data, they were less than either of those years, correct? The decline was less altogether added up than either of those two years. Uh, I, I am not certain that that is the case, but I will take your word for it. I, I, I believe that the numbers did continue to decline. Yes. 
Okay, thank you, Ms. Katz. I appreciate your answers. Judge Bush. I have no questions. Judge Larson. Sorry, um, I have no questions. Judge Nalbandian. Um, I've got a question. So it seems to me the state laws are operate as restrictions, either kind of on the supply side or on the demand side. Um, and I'm wondering if it's possible that the substantial obstacle undue burden analysis is a prevention test when you're looking at a demand side, um, something that affects the demand side, but if it's on the supply side that you can look at burden short of prevention. Is there any basis in the law for that? I certainly think that, that the Supreme Court's uh, decisions in Whole Woman's Health and in June Medical are instructive here because in those cases, um, the court was focused on the practical effects of, of clinic closures, and it found that clinic closures resulted in a reduction in capacity, and it, and it specifically looked at the practical effects um, and found that when, when there is reduced capacity, um, there is an increase in, in driving distances that patients are forced to undergo. There are longer wait times. There's crowding at clinics. There's increased health risks caused by the delay. And that's exactly um, the situation here because um, after the delay law was enacted and patients were forced to make two separate appoint, uh, uh, trips to, to receive an abortion, um, there was a greatly reduced capacity um, for Tennessee abortion providers to meet the existing demand for abortion appointments. And so um, what happened here was that the practical effects were the same. But, um, but in, let me ask you, but in, but in Casey and in the Chief Justice's concurrence in June Medical, in talking about the spousal notification issue, the, there was, I think the statement was that it was basically going to prevent women from having abortions, right? It was kind of the outlaw principle. And that was, is that more of a demand side restriction, a spousal notification, like a, like a waiting period? So, so doesn't that operate as, as a prevention test in that situation? Uh, no, Your Honor, because um, as I said, in order, <laughs> in order for the, the providers here to accommodate patients and to continue providing care, they had to um, they had to double the number of appointments and, and that required them to increase the, the staff. They, they hired additional staff. Um, they had to uh, add additional appointments. They actually, um, in order to try and mitigate the harmful effects of the delay law, they um, increased the number of days and hours that they were open. Um, it, the Planned Parenthood increased its gestational age to try and um, mitigate the harmful effects of patients being um, pushed beyond the time when abortions were available. And so um, it was it was extremely burdensome on the supply side and it's burdensome for patients for um, for the same reasons because they are forced to drive longer distances um, because they are forced to 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 um, endure increased costs because they are forced to make all of these logistical arrangements. And so I think a waiting period law is 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 in imposes both of the types of burdens. Okay, thank you. Judge Radler. Uh, counsel, I wanted to just follow up on a couple of the questions. I think Judge Griffin and then Judge Lepar asked you, um, when we're considering the additional 
the, the cost issue and whether that imposes a substantial burden. I'm right that we have to consider only the additional costs imposed by the second visit. With the first, we don't consider all the burdens or the costs imposed by the first visit, by the first visit correct? Uh, yes, that's true. Although the court um, certainly can consider um, the 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 factors beyond just the cost of the of the um, visit itself. Sure, but I really just—I mean, it's really the delta between the first and the second. In other words, the first visit imposes burdens on a lot of people. They have to take a day off work, for example. There are some costs imposed on abortion, whether you get the abortion after the first visit or second. And really our question here is just whether any additional, only question here is whether any additional costs, whether it's transportation, work, otherwise, whether that itself is a substantial burden to a, to a large fraction of women. Yes, and the district court here found that it clearly was. Well, the district court, I mean, the district court sort of lumped quite a few things together. And isn't it fair to say the district court rarely sort of quantified the exact number of women that were impacted by these different concerns? I think Judge Kapar asked you a similar question. Um, the district court certainly made specific findings as to um, how many patients were pushed to have later um, abortion procedures based on testimony from the plaintiffs themselves and from um, uh, data that the, the state um, provided. Uh, the, the district court certainly made specific factual findings. Well, as I to was that. just asking about numbers. They never said more than 50% of the women, for example, right? Um, the district court found that over 50% of women are burdened because based on um, the, the large number of patients who, who are poor or low income who seek abortions. So it can't, but it can't be the first, I mean, those women will all be burdened by the initial, by the initial visit, whether they get the abortion then or later on. So you're saying it's the sec, taking the second day off is a substantial burden. The first day is obviously fine. We have to assume that for this purpose. Correct. And it's the second time getting transportation. That itself is a substantial burden with the first time again being something that we have to assume is okay. Correct. Um, because the, the, the district court used this line about two different occasions and it's really just one occasion that we should be looking at. And the district court then talked about getting childcare. Did the district court find that most women who are seeking abortion already have children? Or is it the case that many women actually don't have children? That's the reason they're getting the procedure. Yes, the district court found that two thirds of Tennessee abortion patients already have at least one child. And did the, um, um, did, again, did the court ever give us a, a specific number as to how many women were pushed from one procedure to another? Or did it ever quantify that number specifically or give a percentage in terms of something we could use for the large fraction test? Um, I'm not sure that the district court quantified the exact number, but it did find um, that it the, the district court did find that it happened frequently based on the unrebutted testimony of uh, the plaintiff providers. Thank you, Judge Murphy. Thank you. I, I was just curious to get your perspective on whether you thought it would be unconstitutional if a state set aside abortion just generically passed a 24-hour or 48-hour for some type of serious surgical procedures. If they set, set forth a 24 or 48 hour waiting period, uh, would that violate uh, the 14th Amendment? It, it, it might, it, it certainly, that is the, um, not, the, not the, the question here, but it, it would and, depend. And so why, That's, so what, what, what would it violate? So it violates substantive due process? 
Right. It, it, it would depend on whether the law was reasonably related to a legitimate state interest. So it was, it was, I suppose it's the same interest here. It was just informed consent. I assume that you assume in the abstract, do you agree that informed consent is a legitimate state interest? Set aside the 48-hour waiting period, the end goal to ensure that consent is informed, is that legitimate? Certainly, the Supreme Court has found that states have a legitimate interest in, in making sure. So then, sure. wouldn't the only question be, is the only question whether it's the means are appropriate? And if the legislature just thought doctors weren't giving enough time to patients to make informed choices, why isn't, why isn't that a rational reason for imposing a 24-hour or 48-hour waiting period? For all medical procedures, you yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it might be. It just depends on, on, on the particular... Well, doesn't, and under rational basis review, it wouldn't depend on the facts, right? It wouldn't it just depend on if we could rationally speculate that even if it's over, greatly over or under-inclusive, um, that, that's okay if it's, if it's just rationally related to that legitimate goal that you've already said is legitimate, then we have to uphold it, wouldn't we? I believe so. So if, if that's true, then why at least um, if we accept the Chief Justice's controlling opinion or opinion as controlling, then why isn't this case simply about a substantial obstacle and not about the first step under his view, which is, is there a rational basis for this law? Um, certainly, uh, if this court disagrees with the district court's analysis of the state interests um, that were asserted here, um, that doesn't uh, rise to the level of a reversible error because uh, regardless of the state interests, this court can still affirm based on the, the district court's finding that this law imposes a substantial obstacle. And that I, finding- I, I agree with that. that that's the, the, the abortion specific point. The only point I was trying to make is that it seems to me under the chief's approach, it's a two-step process. One, is the law rational? And two, is there a substantial obstacle? And it seems to me quite obvious under the deferential standard of review that is rational basis review, that this would satisfy just like the hypothetical law I just asked about. Uh, the district court found here that the, the delay law actually undermines the, the informed consent process. Um, but again, I agree that regardless, putting aside the state interests, um, if this court applies the substantial obstacle test, it can affirm the district court's finding. Thanks. Thank you, Ms. Katz. Um, Ms. Campbell, I think you have a few minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Chief Judge Sutton. Um, one quick factual point. And then I would like to um, just address the category of women who were pushed past the cutoffs at the clinics. Um, as for the factual point, Judge Stranch asked Ms. Katz um, whether women who could not receive a medication abortion in Knoxville would have to drive or how far they would have to drive. Um, according to the, the amended complaint, um, Knoxville Center for Reproductive Health, um, which was previously a plaintiff in this litigation, also provides surgical abortions. It's cut off as 15 weeks. So women who couldn't get a medication abortion at Planned Parenthood's uh, Knoxville clinic could just go, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how far the clinics are apart in Knoxville, but they would not have to drive to a different city to get a surgical abortion, at least not um, until after 15 weeks. As for the category of women who uh, the district court found were pushed past the cutoff at the clinics for surgical abortions, 
The numbers in the record, based on testimony of the clinic administrators, is that 169 women over a two-year period at Planned Parenthood's clinics missed the cutoff for a surgical abortion. So that's about 170 out of roughly 13,000 abortions that the Planned Parenthood clinics performed over a two-year period. That's slightly over 1% of women, so certainly not a large fraction of women. But importantly, there's no record evidence that the women who missed those cutoffs could not obtain an abortion in Tennessee. That 19-week, six-day limit is below the legal limit of viability. And there are, although the clinics do not perform abortions beyond that 19-week, six-day cutoff, there are other providers in Tennessee, namely physicians at hospitals who do perform abortions after 19 weeks, six days. It's not in this record, but it is in the record of Memphis Center for Reproductive Health versus Slatery, another case that's pending before this court, where one of the plaintiffs is a physician who performs such abortions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Campbell. Thank you, Ms. Katz. We're very grateful for your terrific briefs and oral argument today. Thank you for answering our questions. The case will be submitted and the clerk may adjourn court. This honorable court is now adjourned.